Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhida. Before we start our discussion on the Met, I wanted to read a listener response to our last podcast, What Curators Really Think, a Cringeworthy Report. This is from Gordon Hatt, who is the executive director of Kafka, which is a biennial organization based in Kitchener-Waterloo in Ontario. Hi, Patty. I enjoyed listening to the recent edition of Explain Me What Curators Really Think, a cringeworthy report today, as always for the quality of discourse, but also to indulge the uniquely Canadian fetish of having Canadian things and places named recognized in American media. It was nice to hear you mention Kafka and Kitchener-Waterloo. The discussion of the regional biennial was great and certainly raised some real issues, but let me clarify a bit for you our curatorial process. The most important thing is to put on a good show, and we try to do this while living in the real world. We have a small budget and usually can't afford marquee artists. And even if we could, marquee artists don't usually provide their best work for regional biennials. We have had this discussion in the past, and we will have it again. People at various times have raised the idea that if we bring in a big name, it will vault Kafka into a new category. The majority of artists showing with Kafka are younger, who are trying to advance their career in the category of interventionist or contemporary public art. Some of them apply to our open call, and some are invited to submit a proposal by committee. People in the community want to see us celebrate regional artists, but we are a small community and it would be difficult for us to put on a biennial exhibition of interventions in public spaces using only regional artists. There simply aren't enough of them with the maturity and experience to develop high-quality public installations. We have some very talented artists in the region, but if we were to only include regional artists, we would be inevitably uh, be representing the same names year after year. The reality is that showing regional artists is only one of our mandates. We have a little legend that I include in my spreadsheets. This legend represents all of the artists' identities that we need to address for various stakeholders. So there's a list here which I'll, I'll read off. One is uh, male-female, First Nations, international, francophone, digital, regional, artist of color. Our digital sponsor may not be sponsoring us, so the digital category could be dropped. The Canadian Council program grants to major international exhibitions doesn't exist any longer, so we no longer have to satisfy the 20% international artist requirement. But this legend, I think, is instructive as to how we think about curating today. I said above that the most important thing for us was to put on a good show. But the other most important thing for us is to address all of our various issues of community representation. I can't say that one diminishes or discounts the other. Monoculture exhibitions, no matter how good, don't address current cultural needs. And the current critique of cultural appropriation, assimilation, and critical exclusion can't be ignored. I've worked in a regional context and I've never felt comfortable with the idea that in the late 20th and early 21st century, there could be anything particularly unique about regional schools. Maybe I'm just a product of modernist education, but I've always felt that it raised the morale of local artists to be included in exhibitions that were provincial or national in scope, 
and scope chatter rather than just regional. Anyway, you're right. Curators aren't miracle workers, and Dan Cameron can only work with the budget and support he has in Kansas City. At Kafka, we don't employ guest curators. Sometimes when I'm having a trying day, I think we should. But I think our committee-curated show reflects the conditions and needs of the community, curated by the people who live and work here. And that's the regional part. It's not so much that the artists are regional as the people who curate the shows so are today local. Today on the show, we're going Thanks to talk about the Met's new admission prices, which uh, have changed quite a bit. Previously, there was a pay-as-you-wish as you policy, which basically meant you could pay whatever you wanted as long as you paid something. The uh, suggested admission in nine, uh, 2004 was about $12. $12. The suggested donation has risen significantly since then. It's now 25 And the uh, museum announced that the suggested donation would no longer be a suggested donation. It would be the cost of a ticket. The ticket would last three days for those who purchased it. And uh, it would still remain pay what you wish or what you can for New York residents. And uh, students from New Jersey and Connecticut? Yes. And, of course, children under 12 are free. Okay. So that's kind of the the background for, uh, I guess, what has become a mammoth debate. William and I had actually quite a heated debate over Twitter at first. And uh, I thought maybe the first thing we should do is just kind of go through some of the arguments that have been laid out and then... Well, yeah, I think it's sort of great. I mean, I, I watched this whole thing kind of develop in real time on Twitter. And um, I think it was Jillian Steinhauer, formerly of Hyperallergic, um, who posted a tweet that just said, uh, you know, something to the effect of, is this, uh, what do you think about the Met's uh, change in admission policy? And Ex- Explosion. And so my my response, you know, was pretty uh, quick and off the cuff. I just said, it's terrible. And that was followed by a lot of responses from a lot of very smart people uh, that I respect in the art world, including Patty. Um, We had some initial disagreement. I felt that Patty was sort of um, trying to just at least understand what the Mets position was uh, for um, what, what was the dire need that they had to change this policy that's been in place for over 40 years? Some of the other people that started to chime in were Tim Schneider, uh, who pub- writes The Gray Market on Artnet. Harag Vartanian interviewed Daniel Weiss, pres- uh, the, C- the CEO of the Met or the president of the Met. That's correct. Um, yeah. uh, you know, presented his arguments in a recent interview. Felix Salmon has chimed in pretty recently. Rebutting uh, those arguments. Rebutting those arguments in a very sharp way that actually prompted another response. Roberta Smith and Holland Cotter, the chief art critics at the New York Times, weighed in on very this. Very early on. Early on. And Jillian Steinhauer published a piece in CNN. Uh, I think I've read something in Freeze Magazine, you know, sort of outlining some of these arguments. So maybe we can get into what, what are the various positions um, that's because there's a lot. Right. So um, why don't we start with uh, Colleen and Tim Schneider, because uh, I think they are sort of, I think, more defensive of the um, Mets admission policy. 
William, you, uh, I think you're probably most familiar with that article. Do you want to outline some of the uh, points that they made? Well, I'll start with Tim. Uh, and Tim actually has been writing about the art market from L.A. And recently uh, his column was picked up by Artnet and he's relocated to New York. So uh, welcome to New York, Tim. Um, his his column, you know, he, he starts off by saying to, you know, he, he outlines the basics of the change and he um, sort of breaks the argument down into two things that I think are important to discuss that we'll probably have to pick up on. Is one, there's a sort of philosophical argument about whether or not museums should be free. And Tim sort of agrees with that in general. Um, but then he, you know, he, started, he starts to look at some data about museum attendance and whether or not free museums actually promote um, more attendance by people. And I think one of the uh, authors um, that he cites is a, a woman named Colleen Dylan Schneider who has a blog called Know Your Own Bone. She has an essay uh, on her blog called The Met's Admission Price Will Not Hurt Accessibility, It May Help, and in parentheses, it says data. So uh, I think these two represent the kind of data-driven analysis camp, which to my understanding of it, and this is a gross oversimplification that just sort of you know looks at some studies from Europe, uh, New Zealand, that kind of came to the conclusion that it's not really cost that keeps people uh, out of museums. It's the lack of time, the lack of transportation or other resources. And that sort of becomes the basis for them saying, you know what, um, there's financial realities. Um, the Met has a $10 million annual operating deficit that need to be addressed. And you know what, free museums don't actually attract people. And that seems to be the kind of core of the argument. Tim, to his credit, seems to have um, acknowledged some of the other arguments that have come up that rebut some of, maybe not just the statistical analysis, but what is the nature of the economic emergency uh, at the Met. But we can kind of come back to these two because I do think the two sides that seem to have kind of emerged around this is that, yes, we love the Met and we want it to um, stay as free as possible or as cheap as possible. Um, and that may require what uh, Daniel Weiss calls co-investment by the public. Um, the other camp may be the more philosophical side of things where there, there is a kind of ideological debate um, about whether or not public institutions are being eroded you know, and this is one of the arguments that uh, Roberta Smith and Holland Cotter um, make very early in their sort of very impassioned um, defense. I just would say that I, I found um, Colleen Dylan Schneider's argument to be a little bit, well, more than a little bit. I found it to be kind of offensive because she just sort of jumps in by prefacing that this debate shouldn't be about emotion, shouldn't be about passions. It's, you know, it shouldn't be about what should be in the world. It's about what the economic realities are. So I think, you know, as we, we go through some of these other debates, we can kind of, or some of these other arguments, we can come back. It's true. And I, I think one thing that becomes clear as we look at some of the other arguments is just how much economic data can be manipulated or like, I mean, I guess not necessarily manipulated is the wrong word, but you can kind of cherry pick your, your data to make your points. And the way that you do that can be dishonest or just not taking in the the full context so i think that that's one of the problems with data in general yes um so i don't know if we want to kind of start maybe uh or back it up a little bit and talk about um 
Holland's and Roberta's, um, what they published, the title of that was uh, The Met Should Be Open to All, period. The New Pay Policy is a Mistake. Because I know you, you uh, really identified with one of Roberta's um, statements towards the end of the, uh, the piece. Right. Well, I guess I would say that I would say that initially I was very sympathetic to the Met in the sense that, you know, as somebody who has run a nonprofit, granted a much smaller, smaller nonprofit, you know, you tend to be very sympathetic to people who feel like that, uh, to organizations that feel that they need to be able to increase their revenue in some way. Um, because typically what happens, at, at least at the smaller scale, is that you're kind of binded in a, a number of different ways. And one way, you know, you're usually short of revenue. And another way, like the ways through which you can get that revenue often feel um, compromised in some way. So you get uh, funds for your programs, but no funds to pay your staff. So when ticketing becomes an option, it can be very alluring because this is money that goes to a general operation account. I think the, the thing is, is that the Met is a very wealthy organization. I think a lot of the discussion that they had, um, both Holland and Roberta resonated with me. Um, Holland brought up the issue of ID, which I thought was a real problem because if you're a New York State resident, suddenly now you have to show your ID or like a bill or, you know, anything that proves your residency. And uh, Daniel Weiss in an interview with Hyperallergic had said that the president had said, well, you know, we're, we'll have a window of time for which we can't, we'll be um, giving out our own kind of admission cards for New York residents. But I think that window of time, number one, is like two weeks. I think they said they wanted to do a kind of three-week sign-up period. In the FAQ on the Mets website, though, they also said they would accept like, you know, a, a bill, like, a you know, your Con Ed bill yeah. if your name is on it. Most people who have smartphones will be able to use that. But, I mean, there are plenty of other people who don't have that. And it, I just think as a kind of policy, there, there's something about that that st strikes me as convoluted and has the potential for ickiness. So that seemed like a problem. Then um, the issue of the Koch fountains was brought up as something that was uh, potentially um, significant in the sense that uh, one of the brothers had paid for a fountain. The fountain has sort of universally agreed to be ghastly. The funds from that fountain could have been used for admissions, and that would have been great. And instead, we've just got this ugly fountain. Yeah, I think Roberta describes them as like Darth Vader-esque uh, fountains that, you know, sort of disrupt the flow of the public and probably are maybe not a, a net positive uh, for the Met. But, you know, that brings up the point that's been much discussed in some Twitter threads and I think even in Felix Salmon's response to the endowment situation at the Met, and that is the fact that when it comes to endowments and what donors uh, give to the museums like the Met, there are often restrictions on what the money can be used for, and that that Coke 65 million was set for fountains, you know, and they cannot be used for the general operating expenses that, say, admissions um, can be used towards. Well, right, and I think for donors, very often it's like much more sexy to have their name on this, like, ugly fountain whatever fountain they they decide is like to their taste then 
giving some money to let the great unwashed masses mill about the museum. Well, and Roberta makes the argument that it also separates the country into, you know, kind of natives and non-natives that, you know, New York City residents and other res you know, students will be able to still access the museum for what they would wish um, to, you know, but the rest of the country has to pay. You know, and the thing about the IDs, though, that still strikes me as a little bit troubling is that even the, the city ID, which was set up for very good, you know, purposes in the age of Trump is still a little frightening to put your name into a database if you're not necessarily a citizen, but you're, you know, living in New York City uh, or in the United States that, you know, in New York City that there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not uh, the city would ever surrender that information to the federal government you know, potentially for ICE to root out um, non-citizens, uh, which is, you know, kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to point out that in a perfect world, we would not have to distrust the government so much. I mean, not even, like, in an imperfect world, we should not have to distrust the government so much. I think it's a huge problem. That yeah, well, I mean, this goes back to that point that, you know, people ne shouldn't necessarily have to show their papers to get into uh, a public institution like the Met. Um, and I, before I forget, I mean, I just, you know, this, this comes up a number of times in the interview with, with Weiss and with others that there's this kind of comparison to the, the, between the Met and the Museum of Modern Art or the Guggenheim. And there's a big difference. I mean, the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art sits on um, city-owned land in Central Park. It is a city-owned building. These are what, you know, part of the main reasons it's a public institution, you know, and so it is a different type of institution than MoMA or the Guggenheim. And I do think that that's a key difference. And, you know, Weiss makes the point of sort of comparing the Met to MoMA and the Guggenheim a number of times in his interview. Well, he shouldn't, heard. though, because he, sh he should be comparing it to the American Museum of Natural History, which is also city-owned, shows works of historical relevance, that go back far back as time goes I think they're they're more similar in scope and, and mission in a lot of ways and structurally well I don't know um, is it worth quoting uh, from Roberta's uh, kind of closing statement about what makes the Met unique and special and what makes you know the pay what you wish so special because it's it's not like these other institutions yeah well this was the thing that convinced me actually it was her words um, she says the Met says it is the only major museum in the world with a pure pay-as-you-wish policy. Their attitude is that all museums charge one way or another, including for special exhibitions, as if to say, this is inevitable, and now we will too. Actually, it should be just the opposite. Pay-as-you-wish is a principle that should be upheld and defended, a point of pride. The city should be equally proud of it. No one else has this, although they should. It indicates a kind of attitude, like having the Statue of Liberty on our harbor. It is, symbolically speaking, a beacon. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And, you know, uh, I philosophically, uh, you know, and ideologically absolutely support Roberta's position. Um, and, you know, this, I think, has impacted a lot of people on a very emotional level. And so the sort of data-driven crowd or the people that want to talk about the economic realities that are motivating this policy sort of turn, you know, try to like um, subordinate that argument and say, we can't deal with the shoulds or the coulds, what they should be doing. We have to deal with this kind of reality. But, you know, some questions that I have that are not resolved yet in any meaningful way are, 
Um, how has a $600 million expansion by the Met, I don't know if it's proposed or it started, um, how is this impacting the financial reality of the Met? Um, the lease of uh, the old Whitney, the Met Breuer, the Breuer building, um, the Met had to enter into a 10-year lease agreement for that building. That has also increased the number of visitors and the overall operating cost of the museum. So, you know, the Met situation um, is not inevitable and it's not like, you know, the stock market or something outside of their control has changed. Um, these are some decisions that they have made. Um, so those are things that I still need to kind of figure out, you know, learn more about myself. Um, but it does, I guess, sort of open up the door to some of the, the rebuttals um, to the very kind of like ideological and, I mean, convincing arguments that Roberta and Holland both make. Well, I do, I do think this sort of leads us towards the uh, hyperallergic article, the interview with uh, the Met Museum president, Daniel Weiss, and the rebuttal that Felix Salmon gave, because mm -hmm. Felix Salmon is a, a writer who writes a little bit on art, but mostly about economics, and is tends to be very quick at breaking down um, financial numbers and telling you what they really mean. Yeah, and he has a new blog project called Cause and Effect that I think is also a podcast, um, but it's also focusing on uh, philanthropy as well. Um, so yeah, he does have quite a you know interesting perspective and a lot of experience um, around these issues. Um, I, I think the one thing that I would um, kind of point out, or at least in the, the hyperallergic interview, one thing that struck me, and maybe we can go from there, uh, you know, when, when Daniel Weiss talks about um, the change in admission policies and how people will know what the new policy is, he says, uh, he says this kind of rather odd statement that I find kind of troubling. Um, he says, but to your point, the vast majority of people who visit the museum from out of town don't know the admissions policy anyway. They just come in and they'll do what they're asked to do. So they would pay if there was a mandatory fee, just like at the Museum of Modern Art or at the Guggenheim. They'll just pay it and they go on having the experience that they're going to have. Which I really don't like because it really reads like, well, we can steal from this person because they're not going to notice anyway. They'll just have the experience they're going to have regardless of what it costs. Exactly. And, you know, again, it's another point in the article, too, where he also compares the map to the Museum of Modern Art in the Guggenheim. Right. You know, I mean, I just fundamentally disagree with a lot of his... Um, arguments uh, about why this is necessary and hopefully um, Felix's rebuttal will kind of clarify why some of this uh, seems you know still so problematic but you know I mean I think one of his his Daniel's basic arguments is that you know none of this is free the museum costs a lot of money to operate and there's a real question about who should be sort of paying for this if it's they don't want to over rely on wealthy patrons and they can't rely on the federal government or even the city government um, so they're going to shift the burden of of the operating deficit to i think they want to increase revenue by about six million dollars a year through uh this, this mandatory um fee. right so it's about two percent is what they're looking at and he's calling it a model of co-investment um you know that's sort of asking the public um from out of New York City to, to contribute to this museum because uh, he says in the article their government is not uh, supporting us 
as in the Met? Right. Well, to begin, I think, like, Harag asked the question, should the museum strive to be free? To which um, Daniel Weiss kind of avoids the subject. And he, he does say that he's avoiding it and explains that he's avoiding it because the museum is actually never free. So the question shouldn't be, should it be free, but who should pay? Yeah, well, we know he doesn't think that uh, David Koch should pay. Sort of halfway down through the article, he says, you know, he's talking about the plaza and that donation. And, you know, uh, Weiss says, we didn't ask him, Koch, to offset an admissions policy that was failing because the public was no longer contributing to it. I'm not sure, morally even, that's an appropriate question to ask him. And I think that is a point where we can kind of um, stop because... Uh, the admissions policy he claims is failing. And he cites uh, a figure earlier in the uh, interview where he says it's declined. Um, he says, but for various reasons over the past 10 to 12 years, the pay-as-you-wish policy has failed. It has declined by 71% in the amount people pay. So the question then, whose responsibility is that? Um, it's a social contract that no longer works. So very clearly, you know, Weiss is not going to be asking David Koch to pay for what he calls a failing admissions policy. But that's where Felix um, comes in and um, makes the point that that's not necessarily the case. Right. In fact, that, you know, we can find the figures, but essentially uh, the amount that people are paying has increased over the last several years, um, proportionally, I guess. And, you know, I think Felix takes issue with the fact that um, Weiss has a moral objection, even in asking uh, Koch or other donors to contribute this, you know, basically $6 million they're looking for. And Felix also proposes some other ways uh, that the, the Met could offset this, you know, looking at the endowment they do have, which has also grown significantly over this period. So wait, what are the suggestions that Felix has? Okay, so I'm going to just quote Felix here. It was an already enormous $2.58 billion in fiscal uh, 2012, and it has risen to an eye-watering $3.43 billion now. That's an increase of $854 million in just five years, or $170 million a year. I'm not buying cries of poverty. If that sum rises going forwards by $160 million a year rather than $170 million a year, the Met will be just fine. So that $10 million that Felix is saying uh, the endowment could rise, rather, you know, there's a $10 million difference, that's the Met's budget deficit. So that their endowment, the principle of it, not <clears throat> what it generates in interest, would rise $10 million less a year and it would pay and make this whole pay-as-you-wish, uh, you know, the mandatory fee go away. And so that's a pretty convincing economic argument right there. I think so. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Um, Although the data people will say that it doesn't matter because um, people find quote-unquote value because they, they are buying yeah, something or supporting something. And you I, will say, yeah, you I will say that actually Jen Beckman um, from 20 by 200 has said that she feels that people understand art better when they buy it. Look, I totally understand that. We live in a consumer society. I mean, pretty much everything we do is based on how much does it cost. Oftentimes, if somebody wants to give you something free, you're like, 
I don't trust what's you. What's wrong with what's it? What's wrong with it? But is it broken? You had mentioned earlier uh, in our discussion, not on the podcast, but just sort of talking about this, that you mentioned a book called Predictably Irrational. Yes. Um, in which the author, whose name I'm going to get wrong, but I think Airely, uh, Dan Airely. Uh, yeah, that's it. You know, you, you pointed out that like based on his studies around kind of chocolates and prices that, um, free wins out every time in the end, if it's presented as an option, like 61 people, 61% of people are going to take the free thing versus the, uh, more expensive or the option that has a price. Right. And the, the actual way that this study kind of broke down was that there was a pricey thing and then something that was close to free, and then something that was even closer to free than something that was like moderately priced. And in those cases, the thing that was moderately or expensive, more expensive usually won out. But in the free case, it always won out. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think what we're sort of part of the basis of this argument is that um, that free choice for a lot of people who would come visit the Met will just be taken away and replaced by a much more expensive um, uh, ticket. And I think, you know, coming back to, to Felix's piece is that, you know, he published this just recently. And in fact, I think it's such a sharp piece that the Met has already responded via hyperallergic to Felix's um, numbers. And that immediately is sort of upon posting that, art collector that I know named Elaine Survey, he looked at the response and said, quote, boggled answer that doesn't match earlier statements by Weiss. And I asked Felix, well, what's the uh, main discrepancy here? And Felix on Twitter said, Weiss said, quote, the amount people pay has declined by 71%, which isn't true. It's the proportion of people paying the full suggested amount that has gone down 71%. The amount they pay has not gone down. And in fact, it's, it's been shown to, it's gone up over time. Um, so there are some substantial um, cherry picking, I guess, that Weiss has yeah. been doing with the data. So I'm not sure, based on just Felix's analysis and the kind of back and forth with the Met that we've seen already in the short period of time, that there's a lot of economic ground uh, for the data people to kind of like stand on if they want to make it about a financial argument or an economic argument. I'm not going to dispute the data that shows that free you know, uh, admission um, doesn't correlate automatically to an increase in um, people coming to museums um, because there's all sorts of other questions about what is on display, who it's for, um, whether or not people have the time or you know, the energy or the interest to go to the museums. Um, but I don't think that the kind of like economic, economic arguments about the change in policy really hold up. They don't. And the one thing that, well, the one thing, there are a bunch of things that sort of, that have bothered me and we've covered a lot of them, but initially the Met had said that one of the reasons they were instituting this was because the city had changed their funding, right? So the city, upon taking the ad advice of the cultural plan, which had suggested that the institutions that got the most money from the city uh, tended to be the largest and also the least in need. So the Met is claiming that because of their reduction in city funding, they are now having to increase their, their admissions. And that simply is not true. 
And we know this because of all the stuff that, that Felix has done, but well, we also know that this is offensive, I guess, because like basically what you say when you say something like this is that the smaller businesses that are providing jobs for arts workers don't deserve to get by. And this is simply because you want to lodge the the ideological argument that some people should pay and whatever you have to do to make that that claim sit a little bit better with the public you do so you like you advance these arguments that aren't entirely true yeah and and, and what happened is we saw Ann Pasternak who runs the Brooklyn Museum over Twitter say the exact same thing she just parroted it back like this is what happens when the city takes away funds from museums well, their admissions go up the, and that the the Brooklyn Museum too should have enough money to not have to raise their admission prices yeah and I, I would in for some context here um, Weiss points out that um, this this model the pay as you wish began in 1970 and at that point, the city was getting about 25, I mean, the museum was getting about 25% uh, percent of its funding from the city. And today, he says, we're, they're only getting about 9% of their funding from the city. You know, there's a lot of other changes that have happened. Their former director, Thomas Campbell, resigned. You know, there was some issues with the management of the Met during his tenure. Again, there's the expansion, um, the leasing of the Breuer building, which has increased operating expenses for the museum. But I think the thing that I want to point out is that there's the cultural plan that the city has put forth. It's like the first cultural plan the city's developed. One of the things that they found is they wanted to increase uh, the amount of funding going into the outer boroughs. Um, and the, the people's cultural plan that was put together, they made the point, they, they really emphasized the point that they weren't looking for the city to reduce the amount of money it was giving to institutions in Manhattan. They just wanted some more money. They wanted the city and the state, whoever, to invest some more public funds into museums so that they weren't just calling for redistribution, they were calling for a kind of idea of a, some reparation of funds to get more funds for culture in the city. And I just think it's a really shitty argument to be like, oh, well, you know, it's the city's fault. They're sending money out to, you know, Brooklyn and the Bronx. Where's the, you know, the Bronx Museum's been able to, it's a free, there's no admission uh, charge there. And, you know, this isn't like, you can't just blame the city or any, any recent change on this. So I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but I would point well, out that I, I wouldn't blame the city's new cultural plan for this change. Sure. I mean, I guess I would also add to this that I think one of the arguments we've seen a lot is that, um, yeah, and this is something that Daniel Weiss takes uh, pains to refute, is that, well, rich people, the board members, need to pay more. And I feel like that is... In, in a way, it's a flawed argument, like that rich people should pay more. I mean, because it's the argument that we always go back to when our government fails us. And I fundamentally believe that our government should work for us first, and then we should look to rich people, because rich people always fail us. The government shouldn't. 
So like if, you know, you can't change individuals, you can make better government structures so that they work. I mean, it's an uphill battle. I, we have been struggling with this for a really long time, but I just, I feel like we always kind of retreat to these positions like, well, the government doesn't work, so we're going to have to just push harder on rich people and like rich people, they're just people. They do the wrong things. Yeah, I, I agree with I mean I you know, agree with you in principle on that. I I think, you know, an over reliance on private philanthropy is a major problem with this. <laughs> there was a an article in Freeze that came out um about this very thing and it's just worth pointing out there's I can quote this at only point two five percent of the country's GDP, the United States spending on cultural institutions is the second lowest of any country tracked by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development save for Colombia. I mean, in the art world, that's fairly ironic. But, you know, we can even get a, a percent, like 1% for art in this country. And I think, you know, we could do better as a society. And that, you know, this is an underlying argument around all of this. And I, I know we went back and forth on Twitter about this, you know, this, this kind of neoliberal shift and what even that term means. Right. Um, and just to clarify, I just want to read this one um, paragraph from an article from, I think, 2016 by a guy named George uh, Monbiot. I don't I can't vouch for him. I just know it's in The Guardian. But the <laughs> the paragraph seems pretty clear. Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations, which basically seems like right now everything that I'm seeing on Twitter. We're all just fighting and yelling and arguing about this, like competing to win this stupid argument to go on it redefines citizens as consumers whose de democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling a process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency it maintains that quote the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning and what struck me uh you know even reading that paragraph and just kind of like a quick simple definition of neoliberalism which a lot of people argue about endlessly what it is or what it isn't. Um, to go back to Colleen Dillon Schneider, um, the, the author that Tim Gray cites in his piece for Artnet, you know, I went to the about section of her website and I think it's just worth sharing, you know, what is the, the Colleen's uh, perspective about culture and museums. Um, she, her, her website or her blog, I don't know if this is the <laughs> organization she runs, um, Know Your Own Bone focuses on your audience and how they think and behave. While organizations may have the specific expertise to declare a matter important, it is the market that ultimately determines a matter's relevance. So I'm just going to say, you know, based on her about section, really this is a, a, an issue of the market you know, for Colleen. And I would say it puts it very squarely in a kind of neoliberal perspective. This is an ideological struggle. And, you know, this kind of, this idea of privatization, the erosion of public institutions is connected to, you know, a, another 40 year shift, you know, specifically in America, starting with Reagan. And th that's, I think that's where her position and the kind of data, some of the data crowd is, is coming from, you know, that, that really this is just a market and a consumer-based question. When there's another argument that this is a fundamentally the question of, are we a democratic society? And that is, you know, it's a big debate. And I think it's why uh, it's, it's ongoing. It's why people are so passionate about it. And that, you know, um, 
I can't really be convinced to be very sympathetic with the Met. The more I learn about this, the less sympathetic I am, and that I well, really see them being treating people like consumers. Well, and that's actually why I thought the hyperallergic article, the um, interview, was was so good, was because it made very clear what the Met's position was. And once you know that, or at least once I had a clear picture of that, I could no longer be in their camp. It really felt like, okay, this is really just about getting people to pay their share, whatever that happens to, to mean to them met. And I think that that um, approach is a little opportunistic. Yeah, and I, you know, the, the met quickly, very quickly responded um, to Felix's, uh, you know, his article on cause and effect. I think the last paragraph or their response, they say, finally, we disagree with uh, Salmon's suggestion of asking our generous contributors to offset an admissions policy that is not performing as intended and that is not meeting the institution's needs. Um, you know, I, they're clearly, they're not going to go back to their donors and ask for this. They're not going to no, try to change their No, because their donors don't want to pay for it. They don't want to subsidize admissions. This seems to be what the, what the direction is yeah, coming and, from the and board. Yeah, and clearly has a moral objection to asking donors to do that. And I think we both understand that relying on um, philanthro capital is probably not the greatest idea. But I would just go back to Felix's point that, like, you know, Felix has been thinking about this for maybe two days now, you know, since this thing has kind of erupted. And even he can just look at the amount that their endowment grows annually and see a path where you could uh, have it grow $10 million less a year, but it's still going to grow enormously and that this problem would go away. So this really comes down to this, you know, this disagreement. I, I just don't, I really don't understand the Mets position anymore, that they want to shift the burden onto the public for no good reason. I think there's a, you know, and Felix just poses one way, even without relying on big donors, that they could they could take care of this shortfall. Uh, just having their endemic grow a little, yeah, they won't do it. They and then you have it. to ask, well, who's then who who are they representing? Is the it board. Really the I ruling mean, this class? Is, I mean, yeah. this has to be. I mean, the board in any organization has a fiduciary responsibility, but I mean that means they take care of the business, and if you are looking at the Met not just as a nonprofit business, but as a business um, under which the uh, charter can be ignored or rewritten at will um, to sort of better reflect the ideological mm -hmm. position of the board, then we see things like the uh, admissions policy changing. and. Yeah, so I think that's kind of where we're at, and um, I don't think it's just an, an emotional debate. I don't think it's just about people's passion for art. Um, I think this is about you know our society and our democracy and what's left of it. And right now, that's I think it's why this is feels so troubling. Um, and you know, I'm I don't think I'm going to be convinced by anything else coming out of uh, the well Met. Let me ask you this, because I, now I don't know if there's a real answer, but like if we go back to Roberta Smith's very powerful argument that talks about how this institution indicates and, and its admissions policies indicates a kind of attitude, like having a Statue of Liberty in our harbor is, is symbolically speaking a beacon. If we've lost that beacon, we need a, 
where do we find another one? Like, how do we relight that? Well, I think, you know, just a little bit that I've seen coming through social media has been people sort of organizing lists of museums that don't charge admission. Um, I've seen other museums, you know, just like the MCA in Chicago talking about when they have low or no cost admission times for people to come. I think it's still important to institutions and we have to remind ourselves that they do exist and that this is not inevitable. Um, this decision could be reversed. And I think really smart journalism by Felix, you know, people like Felix and, you know, potentially yourself and Jillian Steinhauer and other writers who don't let the institution just tell us uh, that this is inevitable or that it's a financial reality, maybe can change public opinion and put pressure on the city, on our elected officials to say, this is actually a bad idea. I mean, I was kind of shocked to see Tom Finkelpearl uh, in a hyperallergic piece say that he thinks this is a win for the city. I completely disagree with that. I don't think this is a win for the city. It, you know, this also, you know, it, it brought back a lot of memories of when uh, Cooper Union um, ended I its thinking the yeah, same thing. Ended its policy of you know no tuition, in part because some you know the the idiocy uh, that we're leading the institution wanted to grow it and expand it like NYU, which is one of the most expensive private universities in the world. I mean, this is that's not a model. Uh, unless you're really just out there trying to seek a profit and make a lot of money. I mean, it's like uh, with the Met, you could just look at their endowment and say, does it, is, it's not like they're, Felix is asking anyone to cannibalize the principle of their endowment just to, you know, to shave a little off of how much it grows every year. And I, you know, I, I, I just think it's crazy. And I'm not sure um, there's an, any easy path to get back to it. I know with Cooper, they fought like hell and that there's an agreement that they're going to try to get on a path back to being a tuition-free model, but it's really hard to get these things back. And there was really only one Cooper Union. And there was one, uh, you know, Metropolitan Museum of Art that's really, you know, this kind of amazing treasure. And we're losing it, you know, that, that part of it for a lot of people in the country. So I don't, uh, it, this is, it's I a, mean, it's a tough for fight. me, it feels like it's very connected to the city because I feel like I'm losing my city. Oh yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and this is like this feels like a really big blow mm -hmm. in that way that this that this thing that that well, has made the city special and unique for so long. And I remember, you know, early in this debate when we were kind of going back and forth, uh, you know, an artist friend of ours, John Powers, chimed in and said, "This is a land grab," and I think you immediately fired back, "How's it a land grab?" And you know, he just pointed out again, this is a city-owned building on a plot of Central Park. And that for a lot of people that now come to the city, there is an invisible fence around that public space that they have to pay to access. And that is, you know, the very definition of a land grab. And, you know, in a time when we're so offended by the idea of putting up walls to divide people, that's what that admissions fee is for uh, people from outside of New York City. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't have any, um, I don't have any great answers. Um, <laughs> I don't want to start a change.org petition. There is uh, one going oh, around. I'm sure there, oh, of course it's, there it's approaching 100,000, uh, you know, uh, signatures. But I guess the point is, and and then what? You know. Well, this is the question, right? In, in like, a very in a very dismissive way, uh, Colleen Dylan Schneider, you know, says, if you want to see the change, you know, vote for it. And I think, well, yeah, I'm going to continue to vote for a government that is going to 
try to kind of not privatize all of our public spaces and institutions. But, you know, she just kind of throws it in there. It's just like, oh, just vote for it. Like we are in a political fight right now for so many things that uh, I just I just found it really off-putting. So any listeners, if you read Colleen's piece, you know, do so at your own peril. There's some data in there, but <laughs> it's uh, not anything I would recommend. Well, I think we should probably uh, close things down. I've wanted to mention that our next podcast will uh, will be hosting Hannah Cole, who is an accountant and an artist, and she's going to talk to us about um, the new GOP tax plan and all the various ways that you may or may not be affected by it. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really important discussion because so much of the savings uh, proposed come from just doubling the standard deduction. And if you're somebody who doesn't take the standard deduction and you itemize, I'm really curious about what the uh, implications for that are yeah. as an artist. There are also very big implications for people with families living in um, high tax states. So if you live in New York and you have children, you're gonna feel this. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. All right, All right. Uh, until next time. Until next time.